Amen. Praise the Lord. You can be seated if you will. Uh, if you'd like to, turn your Bibles to John chapter 16. We're going to start a new series this morning. I was, um, um, well, as we might say, this is hot off the press. I studied all week with nothing. And then uh, just before I went to bed last night, just before I fell asleep last night, um, the Lord quickened something in my heart, and then I got the rest of it this morning as I got up. And uh, he must uh, enjoy me being clueless till the last minute, I don't know. But uh, I want to talk to you about um, some, some things that uh, apply to all of us, I believe. Let me go ahead and read a text scripture here in John chapter 16 and verse 33. And then I'll give you some more information about where we're going. Jesus is speaking to the disciples just before he goes to the cross. And he says, these things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now this word tribulation, if you look it up in the Strong's, it means a, a number of things, but the primary meaning is pressure. It can be translated as anguish, persecution, burden, or trouble. And I think all of them certainly apply. But what Jesus is saying is, this world's not going to be a bed of roses for you. Now, it's interesting that that's the last, or one of the last things, at least, that he said, really the last thing in his discourse to the disciples before he begins to pray for them. And, uh, and he warns them about the trouble that's ahead. You know, it's an interesting thing to me because a lot of times people try to get you on board with, uh, with telling you how great things are going to be. Go to a sales meeting and, and, and boy, I mean, it's all bucket of roses. Then you get out there having to do whatever it is they're wanting you to do or sell whatever it is they want you to sell. And you find out it's not the way that they said it was going to be. But Jesus warned his disciples about the trouble that was ahead. In other words, he's saying, get ready for it. Get ready for it. I think a lot of times uh, uh, Jesus is presented to people as come unload your burdens to him. Give your heart to Jesus and all the pain of life will roll away. Well, it will for a few minutes. But then you'll realize that the pain of life is still there. But you've got the greater one on the inside of you to help you overcome it. Now, notice what Jesus said. He said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Now, first of all, he said, I want you to have peace. Here's the whole purpose that he's talking. He said, these things I've spoken unto you that you might have peace. That in me, you might have peace. That's the only place you're ever going to find peace, folks. You can't find peace in things. You, know, you can only find peace in the Lord. That in me you might have peace. Now, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. Notice the contrast. There's trouble in the world. In me, there's peace. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Now, other translations translate this as, I have defeated the world. One translation, I think Murdoch's translation says, I have vanquished the world. Either way, whatever world you want to use, he's obviously talking about, I have defeated the trouble that's in the world. Now, for what purpose? Jesus is about to go to heaven. Is he saying, don't worry, I've won. Now I'm out of here. Good luck. Make it the best you can. No, everything he's talking about is for their benefit. So where he says, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world, he's obviously talking about a means of or a way to victory for us. Now, you know the most overlooked part of this verse? The little phrase where he said, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. That has more to do with victory and overcoming the, the troubles in the world than any other thing. What I want to talk to you about this morning and probably for the next couple of weeks 
is living carefree in a troubled world. Because that's what Jesus is telling them. Now, how is that going to be possible? Well, turn back just a page or so to chapter 15. Here's part of Jesus' discourse, same setting, where he's talking to his disciples. And notice he says in verse 7, he said, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, notice the conditions. If you abide in me, that has to do with the relationship. In other words, he's talking about people being saved, being part of the family of God, first of all. But then my words abiding in you has to do with fellowship. Because there's only one way you can fellowship with God, and that's through his word. You can set your own course, and you can do your own thing, and you can make up your own ideas about stuff, and it's not going to work. It doesn't bring fellowship with the Lord. There's only one way to fellowship with him, and that is through what his word says. Through the acceptance and walking in what his word says. So he said, if you abide in me, relationship, and if my words abide in you, fellowship, you shall ask what you will. And it shall be done unto you. You shall ask what you will, that it shall be done unto you. Notice verse 8. He said, herein is my Father glorified. God gets glory when your prayers get answered. God doesn't get glory by you suffering and just barely making and scraping through and telling everybody you know that when you get to heaven, you're going to ask God why he let this happen. God is glorified when your prayers get answered if Jesus knew what he was talking about. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. So shall you be my disciples. Now, why is he telling them these things? He's telling them these things so that their joy may be full. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. So when he's talking about I've overcome the world, he's already given them the means. He's already showed them that God cares enough about them to help them into victory in every situation. But if that's the truth, then why are there so many Christians whose joy is not fulfilled? Why are there so many Christians that are living defeated lives? Why is there so much of the church family, the family of God, that doesn't even know that God hears and answers their prayer? Well, notice the conditions again in verse 7. If you abide in me, that's salvation. That part's set once you make Jesus the Lord of your life. It's the other condition that's, that's the, the important one. And my words abide in you. And my words abide in you. And my words abide in you. We might translate that in this way. And if you follow the rules of prayer. Because that would be his words abiding in you, wouldn't it? Is anybody out there? That would be part of his words abiding in you is following the rules in prayer, right? Well, let's see what one of those rules are. Look over with me to to, uh, what Paul said in Philippians chapter 4. And if anybody knew what trouble in this world was like, it had to be Paul. Because outside of Jesus, Paul was certainly the most persecuted of any of the, the apostles, any of the disciples, anybody that we have record of in church history. Paul really lived up to what Jesus said, those that live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. Paul told his, or Jesus told his disciples, if they persecuted me and if they hated me, they'll hate you. Man, that sure worked in Paul's case. I don't even think he had to believe for that. That just happened. But notice what Paul said, writing to the church, trying to help them, trying to instruct them. Verse 6, he said, be careful for nothing. 
Well, that means to be carefree, doesn't it? That means to be free from worries or anxieties. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Now, isn't Paul saying the same thing Jesus said, only he adds a little something to it? Jesus said in John fifteen seven, If you abide in me, my words abide in you. You shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Here Paul is saying, be careful for nothing. Here's the condition. Don't worry about it. But instead of worrying in everything, in every situation, in every place that you have trouble, in every place you have need, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Notice Paul adds the with thanksgiving. Well, since this is inspired by the Holy Ghost, then John 15, 7 will have to be modified to include with thanksgiving to be part of and my words abide in you. Are you with me? Be careful for nothing. This word careful is interesting because it means to be drawn in different directions. Now, what direction does the Bible tell us that God wants us to be in? He wants us to be focused on the things of God. That would mean to be focused on the Word of God, the truth of God's Word, right? Everybody agrees to that? Well, then to be drawn in different directions would mean to be distracted from the Word. Notice what worry does. Worry distracts you from the Word. You remember in John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. I've got a pastor, or a minister friend, dear minister friend who just recently went home to be with the Lord. He used to say this, a troubled heart is an unbelieving heart. We could change and adapt that to say this, an anxious heart is an unbelieving heart. A worrisome heart is an unbelieving heart. Isn't that what Paul's saying by the Holy Ghost? Be careful for nothing. Don't get distracted from the word in anything. But instead, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Let your request be made known unto God. Turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 5 and see how Peter says it. The Holy Ghost must be seen to, to uh, think that's an important point because he has several people, several of the writers, to give us this information. Not only did Jesus say it, but Paul said it, and Peter said it as well. 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll start in verse 6. He said, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Now, you know, folks, there's a lot of, a lot of talk in the church world about humbling yourself. Actually, there's there, what uh, I would be more accurate to say is there's a lot of talk in the church world about God humbling you. Most people think that God will humble you if you try to exalt yourself. But that's really not what it says. It says the humbling part is up to you. You can't find any place that the Bible said God humbles you and really uses this word and means what we know of to mean humble. It's used in one other place, but it's not the same word. It says that God humbled the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt and gave them manna. Well, that doesn't mean he put them down. It means he provided for them. So here where we understand humbling mean to me, meaning to be made low, notice it says that you're to do that to yourself. God doesn't do that to you. God's not in the humbling business. He's in the exalting business. And it says if we'll humble ourselves, in other words, get ourselves in the right position, he'll exalt us in due time. Now, what is the only way we'll ever be able to humble ourselves before God? 
Well, the first and foremost way, the primary way, maybe even the only way, is to humble ourselves to the Word. It's an interesting thing to me that when you get somebody that starts confessing what the Word says about them or about what uh, what we have in, in the, through the sacrifice of Jesus, the world calls that pride. Look how arrogant they are. The very idea to say that they're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Well, we didn't say it. God said it. We're just doing what he said to do, and that is confess what he said. But see, the world calls that pride. When you say that healing is mine in the name of Jesus. Because Jesus purchased it. You have people to say all the arrogance to not submit themselves to the hand of God. Well, folks, the hand of God was to send Jesus to pay the price for sickness. Not to give you sickness. So the world's got it backwards. And when I say the world, I mean primarily the church world. What the church world calls pride, the Bible calls humbleness. Or humility. Humbleness. Is that a word? Well, you know what I meant. Humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God means to declare to be true everything God says is true. Because to do otherwise is to say, no, I know better. The Bible says I'm righteous, but I know how I feel. That's pride. Spiritual pride is taking sides against God's word. Humility is taking sides with God's word. So here where it says humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, it means submit yourself to the word. Yeah, but some of it doesn't seem like it's true. That's why you need to submit to it. Yeah, but some of it doesn't feel right. That's why you need to submit to it. Because the word will change how you feel and the word will change your circumstances and your situations. So humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Notice what submitting yourself to the word causes you to do. It causes you to be lifted up. Wouldn't you assume that that means the same thing as entering into victory? Well, sure. You've never seen anybody exalted that was in defeat. He exalts you into victory. He exalts you into that which you submit yourself to. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. How do you do that? Verse 7. Casting all of your care upon him for he careth for you. Notice the first place Peter is inspired by the Holy Ghost to tell us to submit to the word. And that is concerning our worries and our cares. Let me read this to you from the Amplified. It says, casting the whole of your care, all your anxieties, all your worries, all of your concerns, once and for all upon him. For he cares for you affectionately and cares about you watchfully. I like that. Casting the whole of your care upon him. All of your worries, all of your anxieties, all of your concerns, once and for all. Folks, it's a one-time thing. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean you cast all of your cares on the Lord one time and you'll never have another worry? No, it means every time you come up on a situation where you're tempted to worry, you cast it over on him once. And then you'll have to do it the next time that you're tempted to worry. Next time concerns come upon you, overtake you, you'll have to do that again. But it's a different worry. I had somebody come to me. This has happened a number of times, but I'm thinking about one time in particular. A lady came to me after the ch- after church service, and, and uh, you could tell she had been in, in Pentecostal circles for a long time. You, I don't want to go into detail. You could just tell. 
And uh, so anyway, she said, uh, uh, she, the first time in the service, she said how much she enjoyed it and all this that kind of stuff. Told me a little bit about herself and some of her background, where, you know, what God had done with her and that type of thing. And then she said, uh, Pastor, pray for me. She was holding my hand as uh, she was saying goodbye. She said, Pastor, pray for me. And I said, I just held her hand. I said, what for? She said, well, pray for me that I'd have more faith. I said, I can't do that, sister. That's what the Bible says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. She said, well, pray for me that I'll have greater knowledge. I said, I can't do that either, sister. I said, the Bible says knowledge comes by the, by the, uh, through the word. What you do about it makes a difference, not what I pray. And then she said, well, just pray for me that I'll be able to do the things that God wants me to do. I said, that's more up to you than it is to him. <laughs> so there were several other things. She went through about five things, you know. Finally, she said, well, just forget it. <laughs> then she said, do you ever pray? And I said, yes, ma'am, but I, probably, I make sure to pray scripturally. We haven't seen her since. I don't think she really liked that. I'm going to date myself here. Any of you remember the old-time flypaper? My grandmother had an old, old, old house. I mean, this, this, this house was, had been there a long time before they came up with the word old. And uh, it, was, uh, it was built on kind of a little hillside. And the, the, the back side of the house was lifted way high up off the ground. It was on pillars and that type of thing and, and there was a um, the kitchen was off to one side of the house and it had a back door or a, a door to the outside that at one time it had a great big long uh, run of steps up to it but the steps were gone so you open this door and it's just like a 30-foot drop so they didn't open that door very much but uh, but it would get hot in the summer you know and and uh She's always cooking and that type of stuff. And so she'd open that door sometimes. They didn't have a screen on it because it was hardly ever open. And so she'd open that door. And, and so one day it was opened and, and flies were real bad in there. And, and I don't know if you remember or not, but the flypaper used to come off kind of like a roll of paper towels. It was before they got these fly traps and all that kind of stuff. And so there's this. I, I was left down at my grandmother's house one day. I must have been seven or eight years old, something like that. And... um, um I went into her kitchen and all of a sudden there's a new thing. There's this little piece of paper, strip of paper there sitting on top of the, the piece of furniture, whatever hutch, whatever it was she had in there. And uh, the back door was open and she was always real careful. She'd put a chair in front of it, you know, try to like that would stop us. But uh, she'd put a chair or anything she could if she knew that we, my brother and I were going to be down there or any other the my cousins. And uh, And so I looked over and I saw that the door was open. Well, that was... I mean, the door is open. Well, you just never see that door, so you got to look out and see how far down it is, you know, that kind of stuff. So she's freaking out and all this kind of stuff. So she tries to get me to stay away. But it was so hot, she had to leave the door open. And so I looked over there, and I saw this thing, and there was a couple of flies stuck there. Now, this, uh, this thing was like the La Brea tar pits for flies because one touch, and that was it. They were, they were there forever. They'd be fossilized there if you left them long enough. So I was fascinated. I'd never seen this before. I was fascinated. These flies were still alive. They're buzzing, trying to pull away, and they can't. They're stuck in there. And so I forgot about the door. I went to the fly paper. And my grandmother said, now, Mike, do not touch that. It's sticky. I don't know what they use on there, but anything that can be that destructive has got to be bad for you. Just don't touch it. 
why would you tell me that? Now, there wasn't a whole lot to do at my grandmother's house. Uh, well, I, I should qualify that. She had a basement that, uh, that in the daytime was scary. It had a boiler down there. When that thing turned on, it sounded like the gates of hell had opened up. And I mean, it would just freak you out. At night, it was the spawning place for everything evil. You just did not go down there. And so when I was by myself, when it was my brother and I, we'd go down there together, you know, we'd kind of bolster our courage. But when it was me by myself, there's no way I'm going to in the basement. So there's nothing else to do at my grandmother's house. So I went outside for a while and did whatever you could do, you know, as a kid, try and find something to do. But I got my mind on that flypaper. I did not forget about that flypaper. So I finally worked my way back inside and got my grandmother in another part of the house doing something. And so I went in there and, and of course you get, you know what you got to do with flypaper. You got to touch it. Well, I did. I touched it. I reached out and I touched it. Kind of poked the fly a little bit and he didn't move. So I just reached out and touched it. When I did, the paper came up with me. Now it's on my, it's on my hand. So I took my other hand and I pushed it off. Well, now it's off this finger, but it's on this finger. I went through about 10 minutes, wound up on the floor with it on my knees. And my grandmother comes in and she's, I, I know I'm dead. I can hear her coming and I know I'm dead. I mean, wherever you touch that thing, it would stick. It would pull off from the other thing if you pulled hard enough. But now you're stuck and can't get it off. There's no way I could come up with something that uh, that I could get it off with. She came around the corner and saw me and she started to get mad and then she realized how foolish I looked. So she started laughing. So I escaped. But I always think about that when it comes to casting your cares over on the Lord. Because sometimes cares and worries are like flypaper. You see what the Bible tells you to do. Lord, I I cast this care. I've got these bills coming. They're due next week. I cast this care over on you because your word says that you'll supply all of my needs according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But then you leave that place of prayer and you realize it's still stuck to you. And sometimes it takes multiple tries, multiple attempts to get rid of it. Now, sometimes folks think that what this means is we're supposed to go through life not even recognizing the the cares and the concerns and the real things in life that we have to deal with. Folks, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is pass up every opportunity you have to worry. See, worry is a choice. And remember, the Bible identifies, Paul identified in in, uh, Philippians 4, 6, that being careful is to be distracted from the word. You can't worry and be in faith at the same time. And in the same manner, no matter how big your problems are, worries and cares have a single handle. By that, I mean you can't carry them and expect God to carry them too. If you're carrying them, he's not. But if he is, then you're not. Now, do you remember where Jesus said, uh, where we started? He said, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Let me show you how that fits. We've already looked just briefly at what Paul said. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God with thanksgiving. Notice how James says it. Turn back just a couple of pages to James chapter one. He didn't talk about worries so much. He just talked about what to do when you get in the middle of trouble. Notice he said in verse 2, he said, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. This word temptation is the same word tribulation that Jesus used in John 16. 
tests, trials, adversities, pressures, troubles. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Now, how many of us really do that? We may know, we may be aware that we're not supposed to worry, but how many of us really count it joy when we're in the middle of trouble? Count it all joy when you fall into different troubles. Count it all joy when you fall, when you're tempted with sickness. Count it all joy when you're facing money crisis or a money crunch. Count it all joy when your kids say they hate you. Count it all joy when your boss says we're laying people off. Oh, Pastor Mike, that can't be what it means. Yeah, we just think that Paul, that uh, James was writing in, in King James English stuff that didn't have a real meaning. No, it really does have a meaning. Count it all joy when you fall into different troubles, tests, trials, or afflictions. Knowing this, here's what enables you to count it joy is you have to know this. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Patience means endurance. Somebody said, um, um, well, uh, never mind. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. I was about to mess up a story. And rather than take the time to get into it, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. What is patience? Patience is constancy. Patience is hopeful, expectant constancy. Somebody said that patience is endurance with the light turned on. Endurance with the light turned on. You know what that means? They were talking about using the illustration of having the light on for somebody to come home, somebody to return home. Patience is endurance. Going through the motions, doing the same thing day after day, being constant, being consistent, but expectant. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. What, what good is that going to do? What good does it do to know that? But let patience have her perfect work. Perfect means complete. That you may be perfect or complete and entire, wanting nothing. I like another translation that says, but let patience have her perfect work, that your victory may be fully restored. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about patience bringing you back to a place where the trouble is over and you win. Now, what does that? Patience does that. The Bible says through faith and patience, we inherit the promises. It doesn't even say that faith does that. Although faith is a necessary element, you could well understand that. But it says that patience is the part. The patience is the characteristic that brings your victory into restoration. That your victory may be fully restored. I love that. But let patience have a perfect work. That means patience can have an imperfect work. That means you can give up before it's done. But let patience have a perfect work that victory may be fully restored. That you may be perfect and incomplete, wanting nothing. Wanting nothing. That means lacking nothing, doesn't it? It means lacking nothing. So notice what it says. Jesus said, be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. Paul said in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And now James says, count it all joy when you're in the middle of trouble, knowing that your patience will restore your victory. 
I had the Lord say something to me this week that, uh, that got me thinking along these lines. I had no idea we'd be teaching along these lines, but, um, but something happened earlier in this week. And, uh, and I woke up early in the morning with, um, uh, wide awake. Now, when that happens to me, I know it's God because I usually go to bed late and, and, you know, I'm not first thing in the morning type guy unless God wakes me up for something. But anyway, the Lord woke me up and I heard these words. He said, your enemy has seriously miscalculated. Okay. Well, now that I'm awake, I'm ready. I'm ready to hear the rest of this. And there was no rest of this. And I started meditating on that. And this happened Monday morning. I started meditating on that. And I started thinking, the enemy has seriously miscalculated. And I started praying, Lord, what do you really mean? And so forth. And I finally settled here on James chapter 1. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. And throughout the week, once I settled there, it took me about, uh, well, most of the rest of the day to really hone in on that being what, uh, what God was trying to get across to me. And I realized... And the same thing's true for you. It's not just me. But the same thing's true for all of us. If the devil tempts you, uh, well, I'll use me for an example because I know me better than you. If the devil brought something against me that you couldn't see, you'd never know about it. I'd never say a word to you about it. There's a lot of things that happen to me in private in my personal life where the devil is trying to do something that I handle it myself and never say a word about it. I may tell something, you know, five years down the road, use it for an example, a sermon illustration. But something you can't see, the devil would, uh, something the devil brings to me that you couldn't see, you'd never know about it. And I realized what the Lord was saying is the devil has seriously miscalculated by doing something against me that everybody can see. Because what does he think? That I don't believe the word I'm preaching? That must be his attempt. It must be that his, his attempt must be in, rooted in the fact that I'll preach something, but then not experience it or live it for myself. Well, folks, that's just not possible. So he's seriously miscalculated. Seriously miscalculated. You know what I want you to do? I want you to take notice of the fact that sometimes my hand and my leg shakes. Because there'll come a day where you'll say, remember those days when Pastor Mike's hands and legs shook? And that has brought me a whole, that's caused me to live a whole different week. Now, I know people don't like to uh, like to think of it in these terms. Turn back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul's talking about his own uh, situation. And this wasn't sickness. This wasn't uh, a physical sickness. This was persecution. Paul starts off in the first uh, first verse. Well, I'm just going to read down through this. Paul said, it is not expedient for me doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. In other words, he's saying, I'm not going to glory about what I've done. I'm not going to brag about anything that I've done. That's not helpful. That's that's worthless. But I will brag on the, the visions and revelations I've seen of Jesus. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth such a one was caught up to heaven or caught up into the third heaven. He's got to be talking about himself. Because if he wasn't talking about himself, he'd know whether or not he met him in the body or out of the body, wouldn't he? And this experience that took place had to be while he was alone. Because if there was anybody there, they could have told him when he was caught up into the third heaven, whether he went in body or just in spirit. Right? 
Pretty easy to tell somebody's body disappears. So he says, I knew a man in Christ, talking about himself, above 14 years ago. Whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell. Being in and out of your body, in or out of your body, doesn't seem to affect your ability to determine or discern. In other words, Paul felt the same if he was out of his body. If his spirit left his body, that means he felt the same outside of his body as he felt inside of his body. Otherwise, he'd been able to tell. Whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven, which means there's got to be at least three. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. doesn't mean God wouldn't let me say it. It means I don't have words to describe it. I'm not able to utter them. I'm not able to tell you about the things that I saw. I don't have a point of reference that I can describe them. Of such a one will I glory. In other words, I will glory in who I am in Christ and what God has allowed me to experience. Yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. In other words, he's saying, but the only thing I'm going to glory about myself as far as my flesh is concerned are my weaknesses. Now, that's an interesting attitude. How many of us magnify our weaknesses? I don't know about you, but I try to cover mine up. But isn't that what he's saying? He's saying the thing that I'm really going to glory in, the thing that I'm going to magnify are my weaknesses. And that's all infirmities means here. It means a weakness or a lack of strength. That's what I'll glory in. Again, that seems to be a different concept from most of the church world today. I get criticized for my weaknesses. Nobody criticizes my strengths. Because everybody can see the benefit of those. But I get criticized for my weaknesses. Everybody tries to change me in the area of my weaknesses. Yet Paul said that's what he'll glory in. Only of myself will I glory in my infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth. But now I forbear lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be or that he which he heareth of me. In other words, I've got things that I might want to brag on myself in the flesh about. But that would be foolish. Because I'm nothing more than what you see and hear of me. In other words, Paul's saying we're all tempted to lift ourselves up and make ourselves look better than what we really look like. Okay, not you, but the rest of us. Isn't that true? And that's just a part of our shield. That's just a part of what we do to try to cover up what we consider to be our weaknesses. Yet Paul says, I'm going to glory in my weakness. And lest I should be exalted above measure. Now, let me ask you a question. If Paul's not going to exalt himself, and if Paul is not talking about the things that he's done, how in the world was Paul exalted? He's already said, I don't do it in myself. Even though if I've got something that I could glory in myself, in my flesh about, I'm not going to do it because that's foolish. So how has he been exalted? Well, what we read over in 1 Peter chapter 5 about what we're supposed to do has come to pass in Paul's life. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Paul has been exalted. How has Paul been exalted? Unless I should be exalted above measure... Through the abundance of the revelations. Through the abundance of the revelations. 
How was he exalted? He was exalted among men by the things that Jesus had revealed of himself to Paul. What we know of in the letters that he wrote to us, who we are in Christ. Paul was big stuff, folks. As you well might imagine, if somebody came to our services and we didn't know anything about the New Testament, if it hadn't been written, it hadn't been given to us, and somebody said, I had a vision of Jesus, and here's who he says we are in him. Well, you've got the Holy Ghost on the inside of you, just like he does. You would know that it bears witness with your heart with what he was saying. You would know when he heard, when he spoke these things, as soon as you heard them, you'd know, wow, that's right. That's, I don't understand it, but that's got to be right. That witnesses with me on the inside. You'd know that was right. As a result, Paul, who was the first one in many cases, most cases, to deliver any of this information, was exalted among the people by people saying, who in the world has this kind of revelation? And why would Paul, I'm sure there were a lot of questions. Why would God give it to a guy that persecuted and killed Christians? I'm sure there'd be people in the church that would say, now, God must have made a mistake. Because if you're going to pick somebody to reveal things to, there's got to be a better person to reveal them to than Paul. I mean, this guy's hard-headed. He's obstinate. He'll fight among the people. I mean, he, he separated with some, some of the, with some of the people that uh, the gods started him out with because they disagreed in doctrine. And that was Paul's fault, by the way, not Barnabas's. I'm sure there's a lot of things that we could look at and, and come up with a lack of understanding or not be able to figure out why God did what he did. But notice what Paul says. He said, unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of God, to buffet me. Now, we can argue about the thorn in the flesh all you want to. Paul used an example that was uh, that was common in his culture. It was common in his day. The example that he used was a thorn in the flesh. That goes back to the Old Testament uh, prophecies about Ishmael and the Arabs being a thorn in the eyes or in the sides of the Jews. It's the only place you can find it in, in scriptural references and in the, the writings of that day. It was a common thing. Jews and Arabs were fighting even then. There were disagreements, there were arguments, there were wars, there were conflicts, and so forth. So Paul uses an example that his world would understand. Maybe not so much in our world, because we've got the benefit of religious leaders to tell us other things other than what the Bible says. They may not have had those. So Paul says, unless I should be exalted above measure, there was given unto me a thorn in the flesh. Paul identifies the thorn in the flesh as persecution. Now, you can believe whatever you want to about it. Most of the, much of the church world, maybe most of the church world, believes Paul had some terrible sickness or, or disease. But notice where it came from. Whatever you think it is, notice where it came from. It says it was the messenger of Satan, not the messenger of God. So notice what's happening. God's exalting him by the revelations. The devil's trying to stop him. Now, whatever you think the thorn in the flesh was, the, the, the method or the vehicle whereby the devil's trying to stop him, it's the devil trying to stop him. Now, that's not what the church world will tell you. Church world will tell you that God wanted Paul to keep from being exalted, so Paul humbled, or God humbled Paul by giving him this thorn in the flesh. Well, where would God get that? Paul said it was the messenger of Satan. Now, I, I personally think Paul would know because he's talked to the Lord about it. 
He's had God talk to him about what this thing is and what's going to happen and how it works. So I personally think Paul would know better than the church leaders what it was. And Paul said it was the messenger of Satan to buffet him. So you got God doing the exalting, and you've got the devil trying to stop him, trying to hinder him. I would submit to you just to consider the church side's position. If God's trying to keep him from being exalted, why wouldn't God just stop the revelations? Doesn't that seem like an easier way? But because people don't know what the character and the nature of God is, that God's good and he's only good and it can only be good, they've gotten their own doctrines figured out, figured out in there and, and uh, they've ascertained or surmised that God is something different than he is. But that's a failure to humble yourselves to the mighty hand of God. That's a failure to humble yourself to what the word says about God and come up with your own idea instead. That's spiritual pride. It's, it's, it has always amazed me that the people that call us proud are operating in spiritual pride. Those that claim that, that those of us who take the word of God at face value and confess what the word says about us, they say we're proud and they're the ones being proud. Because they say the word can't be true for them. That's not true for anybody. Well, that's calling God a liar. The Lord rewards you according to your works. So Paul says, unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me. The word buffet means to deliver blow after blow. If this was sickness, sickness doesn't deliver blow after blow, folks. This verb, this word buffet comes from the verb, which means the ill treatment of others. In other words, he's saying there was a messenger of Satan given to me to persecute me. That's what the words mean. Lest I should be exalted above measure. And notice he says that twice. Lest I should be exalted above measure. What's supposed to stop him from being exalted above measure? The persecution. The devil's plan was to send this messenger, uh, a demonic assignment in other words, to stir people up against Paul, to keep him from being exalted above measure, and through blow after blow being delivered unto Paul, and Paul has only one city that we have record of in the book of Acts that he did not get run out of town from. Only one. Sounds like blow after blow to me. For the purpose of keeping him from being exalted above measure. Now, if Paul is exalted above measure because of the revelations, what effect would that bring? People would believe him. They would give ear to what he says. And the devil doesn't want that. So what's the devil trying to do? He's trying to stop the word. He's attacking Paul to try to stop the word. Guess why the devil attacks you? To try to stop the word from working. See, you're not the devil's concern. But the word that you stand on is. That's why he tries to distract you from the word through cares and concerns and worries. Because the word is his ultimate aim. He's trying to stop the word from coming to pass in your life. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice three times that it, Rotherham's translation says he, it's a personal pronoun, he might depart from me. You wouldn't call sickness a he, would you? For this thing I besought the Lord three times that he would depart from me. But the Lord said unto me, and he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Folks, I want you to know something that grace is never, ever, 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 
spoken of throughout the scriptures as being a cure or a solution for a physical problem. Never. But it's always spoken of as an answer for spiritual things. Grace is spiritual, not physical. So the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for me. In other words, I've made a way for you to escape too, Paul. In this world, you'll experience trouble. You'll have trouble. You'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. He's saying, my grace works for you just like it works for everybody else. He's not saying, no, you're going to have to put up with this. He's saying, I've made a way for you to escape just like I've made a way for everybody else to escape too. I overcame the world. So be of good cheer. Again, that phrase, be of good cheer. We overlook that. We think Jesus is just saying, so be happy about it. Find some way to be happy if you remember to. But that really means something here, folks. Paul, uh, The Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. In other words, I can't be strong in you unless there's a weakness to overcome. What does Paul say? Most gladly, therefore, therefore, therefore. Most gladly, therefore, because of the means of escape, which is the grace of God that has been made available for us in our weaknesses, most gladly, therefore. I will rather glory in my infirmities, my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What's he saying? He's saying, I've decided to get happy about the things that I have trouble with, because that's where God's power can show up big. So you got Jesus saying, be a good cheer because there's a means of escape. I wonder if cheer has anything to do with the means of escape. Paul said it did. In Philippians chapter 4, be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer, with supplication, uh, and by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Now we see James saying, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, and let patience have a perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing, that your victory may be restored. So you got James saying, count it all joy, or rejoice in the same way. Now Paul is saying that in his own situation, he learned that in whatever area of weakness or trouble or pressure or adversity, he found out that the key is to glory in that opportunity for the power of Christ to be made strong. Most gladly, therefore... Will I rather glory in my infirmities, my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may, t- may rest upon me? Therefore, I take pleasure in weaknesses. Is that any different than saying I count it all joy when I'm in a hard place? Isn't he saying the same thing? Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm a strong. Notice about the only thing he left out of the list was sickness. Infirmities means weakness. It doesn't mean sickness. Reproaches means rebukes. That's not sickness. In necessities means a lack of physical resources, financial hardship. That's not sickness. In persecutions, we know what persecution is. It's when people come against you, trying to do you in in some way or another. That's not sickness. In distresses, distress is just a general word that means whenever I need help. That's not sickness. For Christ's sake, for then when I am weak, then I am I, then am I strong. In other words, he's saying, I can't have the power of Christ come upon me to make me strong unless I acknowledge and glory in my weakness. 
Folks, I've got to tell you, I've been glorying in my weakness. Now, don't get me wrong. I realize that being one characteristic of being strong in faith, according to Romans chapter 4, to follow the faith or example of Abraham, is, is to glorify God. In other words, to praise God for the answer before you see it. But I'm looking at it in a whole new light now. Because my enemy has seriously miscalculated. Well, what about yours? What about your enemy? Has he miscalculated equally with you? Go back with me to First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, we started in verse 6, I think it was. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Verse 7, we went further and it said, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Again, the Amplified says, casting the whole of your care upon him, all your anxieties, all your worries, all your concerns upon him, for he careth for you affectionately and about you watchfully. About you watchfully. God cares about you watchfully. That reminds me of the Old Testament scripture that said God watches over his word to perform it. How does God care for you watchfully? Well, if you've humbled yourself to the word as in verse 6, then that means he's watching over his word to bring it to pass in your life. But it still depends on you in verse 7 to cast the whole of your care on him once and for all. In other words, he can't do anything about your situation if you're carrying it yourself. I think a lot of times some of us are like the lady that came to Brother Hagin and said, Brother Hagin, I need you to pray for me. He said, what for? That's where I learned how to do this. She said, well, I just want you to pray for me that the Lord will do one of two things. Either that he'll give me strength to carry the burdens of life or that he'll take half of them away because I think I can carry about half of them. Well, he said, sister, I can't pray either way. Because God doesn't want you to carry half the burdens. He doesn't want you to carry all of them. carry any of them. He wants you to cast your care over on the Lord. She looked at him. She said, you're hard. <laughs> I've heard that a time or two also. See, you act on the word and people think you're hard. They think you're uncaring. But the reality is the Bible gives you the means of victory to cast your care over on him. What are you worried about? If you can point to anything that you're worried about or, or, well, we Christians, we know better than to use the word worry. But if you can point to anything that you have concern about. Thank you. Well, I'm not worried, Pastor Mike, but, but we have to be concerned. No, you don't. Anything you're concerned about means you're carrying it instead of giving it over to him which means there's nothing for him to watch over to perform. See, we've got a lot of people that are in faith from the standpoint that they're confessing the word, but then they're not fulfilling the rest of the rules of prayer, the prayer of faith, because they're carrying their own concerns, and so it's not working for them. And they can't figure out why isn't it working. I'm confessing. I'm saying what the Bible says. I'm doing what Mark 11:23 says to do. But it's not working for me. Why not? Maybe because they're carrying the care themselves. They haven't cast their care over on him. The word cast means to to roll over, to throw away from yourself, 
Can I tell you a story? I was in uh, um, college, one of my later years of college. It took me about 12 to get out. But uh, one of my later years of college, I was in the, uh, at the YMCA, and w- there was a group of guys on certain days of the week that we'd meet there and we'd play ball and stuff like that, ex-ball players and stuff. And, and so good game, real good game. But I'd go early and I'd work out. They had a little weight room there at the, at the Y in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And uh, so I'd go a little bit early, and, and uh, man, I was, I was having a breakthrough. I'd do certain exercises, and I was on the bench press. That's where you lay down on your back and press the, the bar out, up, away from yourself. And I was, I, I was, man, my bench press was just growing like crazy. And so I jumped about 25 or 30 pounds that day from what I'd been able to do, you know, previously. And so I'm all excited, and I'm happy, and I'm, I'm over the 300-pound mark. And, I'm, and I weigh about 180 pounds. And so I'm thinking, man, this is great. I'm getting stronger. This is great. Well, I didn't have anybody in the weight room with me. So I said, I know I can do more. I just know I can do more. So I loaded this thing up. I got about 315 pounds on this thing. I'm ready to go. I'm pumping myself up. <laughs> I laid down on that thing, took it off the rack, came down, and knew I was in trouble. It's amazing. I spent five minutes telling myself, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And it took me less than a half a second to realize I can't do this. Well, there's nobody there. So I lowered the thing down to my chest. And now I've got this 315 pounds laying across my chest. I'm thinking, what do I do? I could yell for help. Man, that'd be embarrassing. I could wait till somebody comes by and then just act like I just had finished my fifth or sixth one, but can't get number seven. What do I do? Well, I'm, I'm laying there and I'm thinking, I know what I'll do. I'll roll this off myself. I'm laying flat on my back and I've got it across my chest here. So I start rolling down, inching it down. You get to about your waist and there's a problem. There's nowhere else to roll that, that, that you can survive. So at that point, I started trying to tip it over. I'm sitting about halfway up, and I started trying to tip it over. I tipped over halfway, so we're the one side of the, the thing. I didn't have a collar on there. So one side of the, the thing rolls off. These three plates roll off, three, three 45-pound plates roll off and hit the floor with a bang. And then as soon as that happened, then the bar flips way up, and the other side rolls off, and it goes bang. Now everybody comes running then. So the embarrassment I was trying to, trying to keep from to begin with, I, I didn't quite do it. But you know what? I couldn't have cared less about being embarrassed at that moment in time because it felt so good to have that weight rolled off of me. It felt so good. It felt so good. I didn't care. They came in and said, what'd you do? What'd you do? And looked around and said, did you get stuck? I didn't even answer. I'm just sitting there saying, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Well, can I tell you something else? Here's the reason why I shared that story with you. I felt even better by rolling, rolling spiritual weights off of me. I felt even better than I felt that day by getting that literal weight off me by rolling cares over on the Lord. And that's what that means. It means to throw them away from yourself and roll them over on him. You know, I don't think sometimes we even know what kind of pressure or what kind of weight we're carrying until we get rid of it. And then we realize, why was I living that way? I didn't have to. I didn't even realize I was doing that. I just started carrying little things to begin with. Now I'm carrying big things and never was intended to carry any things. Humble yourself, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all of your care, the whole of your care, 
upon him, for he cares for you. Now, notice verse 8. It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion. Notice it does not say he is a roaring lion. It says he's as a roaring lion. Now, what's a roaring lion like? He makes noise. It doesn't say a ravenous lion. It doesn't say a meat-eating lion. It says a roaring lion. So he's talking about noise. Here's what your enemy, the adversary, the devil, is like. He makes a lot of noise. Oh, he sounds mean. He sounds ferocious. That's why you have to be sober and be vigilant. The word sober always, every time it's used in the New Testament, it always comes from the root word that means not moved by emotion. Now, emotions are wonderful things, but you can't be led by them. You can't let them guide you. You can't let them move you. So he says, be sober. Don't be moved by emotions. Be vigilant. Be on your guard. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, he makes a lot of noise, walks around seeking whom he may devour. Seeking whom he may devour. Now, notice the word may. It's not the word can. It doesn't have to do with ability. It has to do with permission. It says the devil is like a roaring lion. He makes a lot of noise and walks around looking for who will give him permission to devour them. Now, why does he have to look for permission to devour you? Because you're the one that has authority in your life. Now, why does Peter, inspired by the Holy Ghost, start talking about being on your guard because here's how the devil works in connection with casting your care over on the Lord? Because if he can deceive us into carrying worries and cares and concerns on our own, we are unwittingly giving him permission to devour us. Now, how does he devour us? By getting us distracted from the means of victory that Jesus gave to us, which is the word of God. That's why Paul said, be careful for nothing. Don't get distracted. So again, Peter says, be sober. Don't be moved by your emotions. You know why we care about things? Because we're emotionally attached. Our emotions get invested in whether or not we get the answer. Well, what's going to happen if the money doesn't come in? Well, what do do we care about that? Why are we concerned about things like that? Because of the emotional impact it's going to have on us and our families and whoever else is involved. That's why the Bible says don't be moved by your emotions. Emotions are great things. I rejoice in those of you that have emotions. But they're terrible to be led by because they're not reliable. Because your emotions can change from minute to minute. But the word never changes, no matter how you feel about it. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, he makes a lot of noise, but that's all he can do. All bark, no bite. Walks about seeking whom he may devour. Well, since he's looking for somebody to give him permission, what are we supposed to do? Verse 9, whom your adversary resist steadfast in the faith. Notice that casting your cares over on the Lord has something to do with your faith. He's talking about all the same thing here. He's talking about submitting yourself to the word, cast your care over on the Lord. Watch out for the way the devil will try to get you to let him have permission to devour you. Resist him in the faith. Has your enemy seriously miscalculated with you? 
If he has, then it makes it a whole lot easier to start rejoicing about your trouble. Not because you're in the trouble, but because the power of God and the word of God will be a reality in your life to overcome the trouble. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. Not part joy. Count it all joy. Count every bit of it joy. Everything that you think is uncomfortable about it, count that joy. Everything you don't enjoy about the experience, count that joy. Everything uncomfortable, everything unseemly, everything embarrassing, everything about the situation, count it all joy. I'm even beginning to count the embarrassment of my handshake in joy. See, folks, this is not an attack on my health, even though the doctors say it's certain things. This is not an attack on my health. This is an attack on my vanity. Because I hate for you to see it. That's why I keep covering it up. That's why I put it in my my pocket. That's why I try to hide it every way I can, because I hate you to see it. I hate not having the power to stop my hand from moving. So you know what I'm doing? I'm counting it all joy. I'm rolling that over on the Lord. That's not my problem. Lord, I'm here to serve you. That's not my problem. If you're not big enough to handle it, don't worry. I'll go tell everybody you're not big enough. (laughs) Count it all joy. Knowing this, the trying of your faith, work is patience. But let patience have her perfect work. That your victory may be fully restored. That your victory may be fully restored. Fully restored. I love that. Fully restored. Not one bit left, not one trace left. Never to return, gone forever. Gone forever. Count it all joy. You got anything to count it joy? You got any problems? You got any trouble? You got any adversity in your life that you need to count it joy? All those things that people pray, oh Lord, take it from me. Those are things to count it joy about. Those are situations that we need to start counting them joy. Let's all stand. Let's just do that. Let's just lift our hands right now. Let's just start counting them joy. If you've got any cares, any concerns, then right now while we're just rejoicing, I want you to just roll those over on the Lord. You may be like me in the weight room. It may take you a little bit at a time. You may have to roll them down inch by inch by inch. Maybe like the flypaper, you throw it away and it sticks to you. But you just keep working it until it's gone. Lord, we rejoice. We count it all joy. You know the troubles. You know the difficulties. You know the troubles, the, the, the adversities that we find ourselves in. Family situations, physical situations, financial situations, whatever they might be. Work situations, Lord, whatever they might be. Uncertainty about the future. We cast those cares over on you. We choose this moment. We choose to let you handle those things. Lord knows we've tried to do it ourselves and it hadn't worked. Now, Lord, we cast those cares over on you. We refuse to worry in Jesus' name. We refuse to be distracted from the means of victory, which is the word of God. You said, Lord, that you would supply all of our needs.
according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You said, Father, that you'd bless us in every way. You said healing belongs to us. You said you would restore. Restore. Restore to us that which the enemy has taken. So we cast our cares over on you, Lord. We cast our cares over on you. Now, Lord, you see the troubles that we found ourselves in. But now our eyes are back on you. So we rejoice in the opportunity for the power of God to be seen in our lives. We rejoice, Father, that your word is working mightily in us. We rejoice, Father, that your healing power is at work. That the power, (laughs) even the power to prosper, the power to get wealth is at work in our lives. We rejoice, Father, that the prodigal returns when they come to themselves. Oh, Father, we rejoice that we are not of this world. Even as Jesus is not of this world, neither are we. We bless you, Lord. We glorify your name. Father, it's so good to be healed. It's so good to have our needs met. It's so good to have restoration in our lives. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. name. Worry free. Worry free. Worry free. From this day forward. Worry free. We're not carrying it anymore, Lord, because you've got it. It's your problem now, not ours. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, they tell a story about a little lady during World War II that lived over in London. And it was during the time when Germany was bombing London. They had nightly raids. And as a result, the whole city turned the lights out at a certain time and that kind of stuff. But the, when the bombers would be detected by the radar, then there'd be the sirens go off throughout the city. And everybody would rush to the bomb shelters and seek safety. Little lady, Pentecostal lady, started reading in the Bible and found out where it says that God neither slumbers nor sleeps. And the Lord really dealt with her about casting her care over on the Lord. And this would happen night after night after night. Well, one night, the siren goes off, the bombing, the air raid siren goes off, and everybody on her block runs to the bomb shelter, but she's not there. Next night, same thing, she's not there. After three or four days, they wonder, well, did she get killed in one of the bombs? Has anybody seen her? Anybody know anything about her? Next day, somebody that was part of the neighborhood saw her walking around during the daytime. So they asked her, said, hey, where have you been? We haven't seen you. And the air raid sirens go off. You haven't, haven't come. She says, oh, I've just stayed home in bed. She said, what in the world? Staying home in bed. And she said, well, I saw in the Bible where it says God neither slumbers nor sleeps. She said, I figured out there's no reason for both of us to stay awake. (laughs) 
Now, that's a funny story, folks, but that really happened. You can cast your cares over on the Lord to such a degree that your whole world can be blowing up around you. But it's not going to bother you. Because you've got a promise from God. A thousand may fall at your hand and ten thousand at your right side. But it will not come nigh you. That's the place. That abiding in the secret place of the Most High. That's the place we're talking about. You can live like that. We all can. And should. Amen. Let's lift our hands one more time. Thank our Lord for being so good, for watching over us. Thank you, Lord, because we've cast our cares over on you. All of our concerns, all of our anxieties, all of our worries, once and for all, over on you. You're watching over us. You care for us affectionately and about us watchfully. You're watching over your word to perform it in our lives, to restore us to victory, to bring us into that place of great, great peace because we have our mind stayed on you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for making it good in our lives. Thank you for working it out in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great day. Don't forget this evening, 530, 5 o'clock is prayer school and 6 o'clock is healing school and that there is no Wednesday night service this week. Bless you.